Thank you, Pastor Phil. Uh, it's so great to be with you all. My name is Larry, and yeah, if I haven't gotten the chance to meet you, I'd love to do so one of these days. Feel free to say hi to us, uh, my family and me afterwards. Um, today we'll be reading uh, and preaching from Acts 6, 1 through 7. We're continuing our sermon series in the book of Acts. Um, I'm going to read this together. I'm sorry, I'm going to read it for us, and then uh, we'll dive right in. This is Acts 6, 1 through 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because the widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and uh, Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I actually don't know how to pronounce Timon. I, just, I was just thinking of Lion King, and so that's what came to mind. just realized. Anyways, uh, so I grew up in a Christian home, and uh, for most of my life in the church, uh, I don't think I ever heard a single sermon on race. Um, it just wasn't something that we talked about, wasn't something that was mentioned, and just in my tradition, we didn't really think about how race could be connected to the gospel. In 2012, I got a job working in an Asian American college ministry. I was in the Washington, D.C. area. And at the time, I wasn't even sure if it was biblical to have an Asian American college ministry. It seemed segregationist. It seemed a little bit clicky, but, you know, that's that's the job I got. So that's what I was doing. And looking back, I probably would have said I probably would have used this terminology that I was colorblind. And not literally colorblind. I'm, I do have myopia, but um, it's not color. I'm not colorblind. But what I meant, what I meant is that I tried not to notice people's skin colors. I tried not to notice what people looked like on the outside. And I would often think about uh, the quote from Martin Luther King, a little bit of a misquote, but when he said in I have a dream, the I have a dream speech to uh, one day I have a dream that we will judge uh, people not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And so I thought about that. And that's how I operated being colorblind, being, uh, you know, equitable and non-discriminatory meant we didn't look at color. Um, during my time, however, working in college ministry, I started to read some Christian books on race. I started to expose myself to some conversations on race. And I started to realize something kind of interesting, which is that the Bible often isn't colorblind. The Bible actually has quite a bit to say on race, and it oftentimes, in several places, it specifically points out people's ethnicities to explain some deeper principle. And there are clear examples of racism in the Bible. It doesn't name that word, racism. I don't know if that word existed back then, but there are clear examples of what we would now look at as racism. And there are also clear examples of God wanting to uh, reverse the pattern of racism to battle and address racism. 
And so I started to notice these things and uh, gradually I started to see color. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with this book, The Giver by Lois Lowry. This is one of the classics that you might've read in middle school. Maybe if you are uh, a millennial or younger and, uh, and it's about this kid living in this futuristic dystopian world uh, in which the authorities, the authorities, they mandate sameness across the board. You know, so at age nine, every kid gets a bike. And at age 12, every kid gets assigned their vocation and so on. And they also control the weather. So that every day is the same. And they also control color. They you actually, there's no color. Everything is grayscale. And um, well, the main character, his name is Jonas. He gradually starts to see color. And red is the first color he notices. He's, he notices it when, you know, an apple is thrown in the air. He notices it in some people's hair. And uh, he starts to notice color more and more as the book progresses, all different kinds. And the more he realizes that color exists, the more he realizes how much he was missing out before. And he starts to realize that sameness actually shouldn't be the ideal. Sameness might give you the surface level impression that everyone is equal. Everyone is uh, the same, everyone has equal worth and dignity, but there's actually value in distinction. There's value in difference and there's beauty in that. And that's how I started to feel when I started to read the Bible, notice these things. And so since then, since 2012, I've been noticing more and more that the Bible has a lot to say about race. And it's one of those things where once you start noticing it, it's hard to unsee. So for example, just to give you a few examples, uh, the story of Joseph has racial undertones. Joseph, he's this guy in the book of Genesis, sold into slavery, going to Egypt. And he's a foreigner in the house of a wealthy man from a majority culture. And it's not unlike a black man serving in a white household in the Jim Crow era. And as was common in Jim Crow, the mother of the home tried to seduce this man. And when he refused, she accused him of assault. And once I saw that, once I made that connection, and, and, and if you notice in, in Genesis twice, she uses racist language against him in this accusation as well. The story of Ruth also has racial undertones. Ruth is a widowed Moabite from a country that is looked down upon by Israel as less than. She can't find work as a foreigner, of course. And so her only recourse is to gather leftover grain in the fields of the wealthy, and fortunately, a prominent Israelite named Boaz befriends her. He advocates for her rights. He protects her from exploitation. And eventually, he ensures that her and her, and her mother-in-law have land. The story of Esther has racial undertones. It's about this powerful man trying to commit genocide against the Jews. And it, it's eerie almost how many similarities there are between the book of Esther and what happened in Nazi Germany. But thankfully, Esther who had been hiding her ethnic background this whole time out of fear of discrimination, she decides to stand up for injustice and she saves her people. And so you have these stories that for most of my Christian life, I just sort of read in different ways, but I start to realize actually there are, it doesn't explicitly talk about racism, but racism is part of the story. And of course, the book of Acts also has racial undertones. In fact, uh, I would even say this, you know, throughout the book of Acts, you see these hurdles. That the, that the early church had to overcome. And uh, one of these hurdles, of course, is persecution. People are persecuting the members of the church. One of the hurdles is corruption within the church. We talked about that last week with Ananias and Sapphira, that there is greed and corruption in the church. Uh, 
And another hurdle, it seems, throughout the book of Acts is racism. Throughout Acts, racism seems to be one of the main barriers to the growth of the church. Over and over, you see racism prevents the growth of the church. It's why, for example, the first church council, the Jerusalem council, was convened in Jerusalem uh, in Gen uh, Acts 15 uh, because there was disagreements in how Jews and Gentiles ought to work with one another. It's why also Paul was eventually arrested in Acts 21. The people could not believe that God would have a heart for the Gentiles. And over and over, you also see God leading his people against racism he, to cross ethnic boundaries. You see this example with Philip. Uh, God replanted Philip, moved him to be with the Ethiopian eunuch, to cross racial lines. You see this with Peter, where God placed or sent Peter to talk to this Gentile Roman centurion. And so you see God's heart is trying to uh, bridge these racial divides, whereas it seems like the main barrier to the early church's growth, one of the main barriers, was these man-made racist uh, segregationist constructs. And I think the issue of racism is also at play in today's passage. So we're going to dive in a little bit. Uh, let's reread Acts 6, chapter, uh, sorry, verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So I'm going to unpack this context a little bit. Who are the Hellenists? Who are the Hebrews? So the, uh, the Hellenists were previously part of the Jewish diaspora, and Greek was a primary language, and for whatever reason, they had moved back to Jerusalem. And so to give you some larger history, so the Jews had been living in Jerusalem for a, about a thousand years at this point, and uh, about 600 years prior, uh, Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians. And since then, the, the Jews, they didn't have their own homelands. They were refugees for about 600 years. The Babylonians were conquered by Persia, and they were conquered by Greece, they were conquered by Rome. And so... The, the, the Jews, they were sort of just wandering around uh, as refugees. Uh, the majority of the Jews left Palestine, uh, sometimes by force, similar to um, what happened with Native Americans in the Trail of Tears. They would be forced to relocate somewhere else. And other times they would do it willingly. They would immigrate to, for better economic opportunities somewhere else. But a minority of Jews stayed. Uh, so for 600 years, there was this consistent small presence of Jewish people in Palestine, and they stayed because they believed that it was still the promised land. And they believed that one day God would bring up a Messiah and bring everyone back and restore the kingdom of Israel. And un understandably, uh, many of these Jews who stayed behind in this minority community, they sort of developed a sense of superiority against some of these Jews that went elsewhere, these relocated Jews. And they felt they were more faithful, more devout. You know, they lived in the original land of the prophets, that the prophets of old. You know, they worshipped in the Jerusalem temple, not you know, all, in all these synagogues scattered around. They read their scriptures in Hebrew, unlike the Hellenists who typically read their scriptures in the Greek Septuagint. And they did not intermarry with foreign women. They did not adopt foreign customs. They did not speak foreign languages. They remained culturally pure. And so they had this pride in who they were. And now during the book of Acts, uh, it became more and more common for Jews in the diaspora to return to Jerusalem. And a lot of cases, it, it was for retirement. And in many of these cases, it was widowed women. 
who had moved back. It was very common for uh, women to outlive their husbands. And so it was often difficult to survive as widows. And so they would move back to their homeland. And maybe uh, they had hoped that because Jerusalem was sort of a hotbed of, I mean, there's still a lot of Jewish people there and they were very devout. Maybe they would fare better there uh, than in their previous uh, residences. Um, and so the Hebrews were the people who were descended from you know, this long generation of folks who lived in the Jerusalem area, and they spoke Hebrew, and they prided themselves in uh, uh, having Hebrew culture. And the Hellenists were part of these people who were part of the diaspora who moved back. But obviously, as we see in this text, many of these Hellenist widows were being neglected. Maybe they moved back in the hopes that they would be cared for, but they were being neglected. And so a complaint was arising. A concern was arising that these Hellenist widows were not being cared for. And what were they complaining about? What were they murmuring about? Well, it was that the widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, what is this daily distribution talking about? Well, in Acts 4, uh, this is talked about in the early church. It says there was, Acts 4, 34 to 35, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And so the early church, they had this amazing culture of generosity. People would sell their stuff, donate, to the, donate stuff to the church, and the church would sort of be this distribution center to give food, to give uh, uh, material goods to the poor. So that's this daily distribution that's being talked about. And it seems like, apparently, the people were not being treated equally. Now, we don't know exactly why, but I think if we dig into the context a little bit, we can sort of understand and surmise why this might have happened. You know, so in those days, widows, uh, you know, in order to survive, they would try to, it was hard for widows to work. And so they would live off of sort of the, the goodness of their immediate family members. And if they didn't have immediate family, family members, then their extended family members. And if they didn't have extended family members, then uh, then their religious communities or social networks. And if they couldn't find resources there, then they would beg. So that's what widows did often then. And chances are, because these were Hellenist widows, they didn't have a whole lot of family members in Jerusalem. Um, most of their family mem members were in you know, modern day Iran or modern day Turkey or you know, random places that you know, they, were, they weren't around. And so it would be natural then for this group of folks to uh, be regularly requesting food more so than some of these Hebrew Jews. Um, now, maybe it's possible the food people, the food distribution people, they were explicitly racist. It could be, oh, you're a Hellenist widow, back of the line. Maybe that's the case. But more often than more likely, it wasn't that they were explicitly racist. It was just more so that they had a subtle racism that they might not have been aware of. They might be some, might say something like, man, these Hellenist widows, they're everywhere. They're like asking for food all the time. Why are they so needy? What, what's going on? It seems like, you know, you know, my, in my day, when I was a kid growing up, we didn't have these Hellenist widows around. And all of a sudden, they just pop out of nowhere. They're flooding our cities and taking up all of our resources. Are they even working jobs? So they might, so it's this more subtle thing. They're not actively being racist toward them, but it's, it's more so they're concerned about what's going on in the developments that have been happening and this is all hypothetical, of course, but maybe you were sort of picking up what I'm laying down. But I think the dynamic in Acts 6 is a bit similar to modern day in America 
in how some people may view refugees or immigrants or foreigners. These people are coming into our country, our land, and they seem to be more needy than the rest of us. They seem to ask for resources more than the rest of us. And there's a lot of them and they're, they have a different culture. They have, they speak different languages and they have different customs. And some people are kind of concerned. So what happens? All right. Verse two to six. And the 12, the 12 apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the wisdom, sorry, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So the apostles, they basically, they asked the church to choose seven men. And uh, these seven men uh, are basically to head up the church's food distribution ministry so that the apostles can focus on prayer and the preaching of the word. Now, I think this is a great example of good leadership. You know, good leadership entails knowing what is your responsibility? What has God called you to do? And then when someone asks you, hey, here's this need over here, and you, good leadership is recognizing, you know what, that's not my calling, but this is important thing, this is important, so I need to find people, empower people to do this work, so, and I can focus on the work that God has called me to do. And anyways, uh, tradition goes that these seven men, they were the first deacons of the church. This word serve is diaconeo, where we get the word deacon. And uh, I want to point out a few things about these deacons, okay? So the first thing I want to point out is that these deacons, they weren't just um, cafeteria ladies. You know what I mean by cafeteria ladies? Like people line up and go, here are your mashed potatoes, next, okay? They weren't just cafeteria ladies. And the, the reason why I say that is because a few of these people, they come up later and they have very prominent roles outside of food distribution. So Stephen, for example, later he's described as doing many signs and wonders. He preaches this big sermon, and, and, and Philip, he's described as this great evangelist, and he goes basically on the first mission trip ever, and when he goes and talks to the Ethiopian in the wilderness. And so these men, they did more than serve food, but nonetheless, one of the biggest areas that they oversaw was food distribution. But there's something else I want to point out, which is really interesting, and multiple, multiple biblical scholars have noted this, that all seven of these men have Greek names, they all have Greek names. I mean, it might be kind of intuitive to us uh, in our Western culture. When you look at names like Prochorus, Parmenos, Nicholas of Antioch, it sounds kind of like, you know, people would, who would fight at the Battle of Troy or something, right? And that's significant. The reason why that is, is because it's very likely that all seven of these men were Hellenists. Most people, most Jews back then, if you were Hebrew, you wouldn't take on a Greek name. You often looked down upon Greek culture. It would seem like a compromise to adopt a Greek name. It would seem like you would be pagan to adopt a Greek name. So really, the only people who would have Greek names would be Hellenists. And so it's fascinating because the Hellenists, they were a minority among the Jews in Jerusalem, but they made up 100% of the deacons. And why is that? Why did the apostles choose to install seven Hellenists to lead up this food distribution program? I think it's because they recognized that there was a specific need among Hellenists and 
because this was a Hellenist issue, they needed to empower Hellenists to address this issue. You can think about it this way. The Hebrews, they were in the majority culture. They were recognizing that in the minority culture, there was some marginalization going on. There was some discrimination going on. And they recognized that us leaders, because they were in the majority culture, they had blind spots and they would be unable to address the needs appropriately. And so what they need was to empower minority leaders to take up those positions in order to serve the minority community. Because here's the thing, you know, sometimes people like my former self, when we talk about being racially colorblind, when we think about it as a good thing, we, we think, you know, it's a good thing. We don't see differences. We treat everyone the same. Sometimes what happens is people who are colorblind have blind spots. People who are colorblind have blind spots. And what I mean by that is when you are colorblind, when you say you don't see race, sometimes you overlook the tendencies of the majority culture to do things a certain way and the tendencies within the minority culture to do things a certain way. And what that does sometimes is you oversee, sorry, so you, uh, you are unable to see the issues of marginalization that often occurs because everyone just does things a certain way. This is what's normal. And so what is normal to you is just your culture. And what is normal to someone in the minority culture is strange and different. And so when you don't see that, then that's a blind spot and you make it and, and, and when that's your default, then it's more difficult potentially for someone who's in the minority community to fit in. So for example, uh, at the village church where I used to uh, serve, uh, there was a youth group and there was one kid there named Donnell. And he was kind of inconsistent with attendance in the beginning. And uh, sometimes he'd show up, sometimes he wouldn't. But I got to learn about Donnell and learn about his story. And I realized he didn't have a stable home. He didn't have a father figure. He had a mom who was an addict and uh, he had no car. And so in order to get to church, he had to take two buses. And that blew my mind because when I was growing up, uh, I grew up in a re relatively well-off, privileged sort of part, uh, a suburb in, in, I grew up in San Jose, California. And uh, we had two cars. All my friends had one or two cars. And my, my dad would give me a ride to church. Or, and if he couldn't, then my mom would give me a ride to church. And so if I didn't know anything about Donnell's experience, I would have thought, man, this kid needs to show some responsibility and show up on time. But because I learned about his experiences, then I recognized that I had blind spots. I had assumed things just because this, I assumed this was normal. Getting a ride to church in your own family's car was normal to me. But I recognized, you know what? There are some deeper issues at play here. There, that Donnell right now is being neglected, not necessarily intentionally by me, not really intentionally by, you know, the bus system, the public bus system, but he's being neglected. And as a leader in the church, I need to recognize, and if we want for Donnell to feel like he belongs, if we want for him to be there consistently, we needed to do something extra for him. It's not, it's not, it's not being unfair. We just needed to help him out some way. And so I decided, you know what, I was going to give him a ride every week to go to youth group. And here's why this is important. You know, every group, every organization, every institution, every church, by default, becomes more and more homogenous over time. This is just sort of, this is social psychology, okay? When you have a group of people, they come together for a common affinity, common 
goal, something like that. They have some common ground. By default, they naturally become more and more homogenous. And why is that? Because the things they have in common, those are the things they, they talk about, they share. And so they're strengthened in those things. And then the less they hang out with other people, so some of their distinctives, they fall away. And it's not necessarily bad, but that's just sort of the natural course of things. But what often happens is the more homogenous a group becomes, the more blind spots they will have toward groups that are outside of them. Such that when visitors come in or outsiders come in, if those people are different, then they might think, oh, I might not fit in here. If you have a youth group where every kid gets dropped off by car by their parents, and if a kid comes in and they have to take two buses by themselves to get through that youth group, then it's just going to be a matter of time before they wonder, oh, do I fit in here? If you have a church in Jerusalem where everybody speaks Hebrew, everybody was born and raised in Jerusalem, everybody prides themselves on, prides themselves on being uninfluenced by these pagans, Socrates and Aristotle and all these guys, and everybody has stable family units, then when a Hellenist widow comes in, who speaks a different language, maybe dresses a little bit differently, has strange customs, doesn't have a stable family, it's just a matter of time before that person starts to wonder, do I fit in here? Is this a place where I belong? And when that happens, when a Hellenist widow gradually feels more and more neglected, more and more marginalized, it's very possible that person may decide, maybe this isn't for me. Maybe this isn't where I belong. And then the people in the majority culture, they might go, if they didn't know, if they didn't know their blind spots, they would probably go, oh, I guess this person just wasn't committed enough. Didn't take enough responsibility. Didn't care enough. Wasn't devout enough. But fortunately, that's not what happened in Acts 6. Instead, the leaders, they recognized that there was an important issue and they mobilized the whole church to appoint these leaders from minority communities to solve this issue. And because they did that, the church interrupted the natural course of things, the natural trend toward homogeneity. They became culturally diverse. And this paved the way eventually for people like Peter and Paul later in the book of Acts to make further cross-cultural inroads to make the church even more ethnically diverse. You know, it's just like Asian American college ministries. So I used to work at George Mason University in Fairfax, here's a photo. And uh, I would often hear this common narrative from some of these folks who would be coming to these uh, uh, college ministry meetings. Many Asian Americans, they feel marginalized. They might not use that term, but they would sort of say, I feel culturally out of place when I'm in white majority spaces, I feel like people don't get me. I feel like people don't, they have, they value certain leadership qualities that I don't have and so on. And they sort of, the essence is, I don't know if I fit in. And so what can leaders in white majority spaces do for people like that? One thing they can do is they can go, let's set up an Asian American college ministry and let's empower Asian American leaders and let's give these people resources to serve their people the way they do best. Now, some people, again, like my former self, might go, that sounds kind of discriminatory. That sounds kind of segregationist. Why would you, that sounds kind of divisive. Why would you point out race? Why would you do something like that? Well, I think the desire, the desire to set up something like an Asian American college manager, I think 
obviously there can be bad reasons for it too. You, you can be overly clicky and you can be overly segregationist, of course. But I think there is this aspect of empathy and humility and recognizing, you know what? It grieves me that there are whole groups of people who feel like they don't belong. It grieves me that there are whole groups of people who feel like they don't fit in and we're not able to reach these people well. And so is that true unity? Is, that isn't unity. We need to find a way to bring these people into the fold as well. So instead of a come to us approach, maybe what we should do is let me go to you and let me find out what your needs are and let me empower you sort of approach. And I think that's also what the apostle Paul was thinking when later he would write that he is becoming all things to all people. He says, I am a Jew to the Jews and a Gentile to the Gentiles. Why is he pointing out race? Why is he being different things to different people? Because I think he's recognizing that there are ethnic differences, there's ethnic distinctions, and it can be wise when it comes to evangelism to do things differently to do different groups of people. So Paul is not blind to ethnic distinctions. He is pointing out those distinctions so that he can meet the needs of different groups of people. And what happens as a result? The church grows. The church grows. You know, when I was working in college ministry, I met so many Asian American college students who would say something like, I don't think I would ever gone, I, I would have never gone to like a regular crew, a regular university or something like that. It just, I didn't feel like I fit in. But I'm so thankful that we had this ministry because that's how I got saved. And that's how I grew. And that's where I met Jesus. And the same thing happened in Acts. Let's read the very next verse, Acts 6, verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So what is the end result of the apostles installing deacons to care for the widows? People got saved. Now, this is fascinating because there is a subtle fear in some Christian circles, okay, today in the modern church, that goes, if we dabble in issues of race, if we dabble in issues of justice, if we dabble in issues of mercy or compassion, then we, are, we'll, we will be distracting the church from the gospel. And it'll be a slippery slope. And you, the more you do those things, the more you just become a social club, a social service club, a volunteer, nonprofit club, and eventually you won't talk about the gospel at all. And that is somewhat legitimate. I think there are definitely some churches, you know, they don't talk about the gospel enough. But we don't see that here in the book of Acts. What we see is a church that is fully engaged in issues of compassion and mercy and justice and fully engaged in preaching the word and sharing the gospel. And they go hand in hand. It's clear that in the case of Acts 6, the early church, they did the work of mercy and compassion. And as a result, as a direct result, disciples are made and people are saved and the church grows. Why is that? Because doing works of mercy can be an evangelism strategy. Doing works of mercy, when you do that, you are demonstrating the gospel to people, and then you are representing Jesus to them, and such that when people, they experience the goodness of the church, they experience the goodness of God, and they go, you know what? I want to join this church too. And I also say this, diversity is also an evangelism strategy. Diversity is also an evangelism strategy. You know what? If you have a homogenous church, who's going to come to your church? Or who's going to naturally feel like they fit into your church? Only the people who look like you. Let's say you have a, a church and uh, everyone in the church loves SpongeBob SquarePants. And all they do is talk about SpongeBob SquarePants, okay? If you attend this church, 
you as a visitor and you don't care you don't care for spongebob squarepants you don't even know who this guy is you'll feel left out you feel like you don't belong and the true same is true for the baltimore ravens sellers of Catan, you know uh naruto whatever if if the whole church they care about one thing and they're so homogenous they only care about this one thing and someone else comes in and they don't care about that one thing they're going to feel left out of the church they're going to be, feel left out of the community but if you have a church that is diverse where some people like spongebob and some people like naruto and some people like uh law and order or fill in the blank then when you come in then you go oh there is a place for me here there is a sub community that i can fit in and so what i'm saying is the more homogenous a church is the more it will seem like it's those common identity markers that hold the people together but the more diverse the church is the more it will be clear to the whole world that it's not the hobbies you engage in the political parties you're part of the the uh skin color you have it's not those things that that bring you together it's jesus that despite all of your cultural differences Despite your diversity, God is still bringing, able to bring you together. And, and, and when people see that, that is appealing. And they, they go, you know what? I want to join this church. There's a place for me here. So let's talk about some application points. What can we do about this passage? Here are three questions I think we can all be asking ourselves. Here's the first. Ask yourself, who can I befriend? Who should I befriend? And I'm not talking about people who are like you, okay? I think many of us, we probably have enough friends who are just like us, okay? Uh, people who are just like our clones and they do exactly the same things we do. And there's very little growth from those relationships, but we have a good time, okay? Those are great relationships. If you have people, if you have friends in your life, they do, they're exactly like you. You just hang out. You just do fun things together. That's great. But I would say the average person probably doesn't need more of those kinds of people in their lives. They need friends who are different from them in their lives, and so I challenge you, who can you build a relationship with who is different from you? So if you're not a parent, build a relationship with someone who's a parent and vice versa. If you were born and raised in the U.S., build a relationship with someone who's an immigrant and vice versa. If you live in the suburbs, build a relationship with someone who lives in the city and vice versa. And so, and why? Because I, just think, because I think it is through building diverse relationships that you become aware of your blind spots it is through building diverse relationships that God often reveals to you the needs that are out there in the world. It is through building diverse relationships that God sometimes teaches you compassion and empathy. You know, when I was serving at the village, uh, it was the first time that I lived in sort of an urban context. And uh, as a result of part of my job, you know, I had the opportunity to do things that I had never done before and interact with people that I'd never interacted with before. I would uh, visit people who lived in halfway houses or visit people in prison, visit people who lived in tents in the park. And all of those things opened my eyes. All those experiences opened my eyes. It made me recognize that I had many blind spots. I, I came to see that the systems that were in place in the church that sometimes advantaged someone like me often disadvantaged other people in the same church. Like, for example, you know, when the pandemic happened, tech savvy me. I just downloaded my Zoom app and started tuning into church. And I realized, you know, a week or two in that there were whole communities of people out there who couldn't do that. One, maybe they didn't have internet at home. Two, maybe they didn't have smartphones. Or three, they were just techno technologically illiterate. They didn't know how to 
work a smartphone. They didn't know how to download an app or something like that. And so it was through my relationships with some of these folks that I started to realize we have blind spots as a church. We need to set up systems to incorporate some of these other communities that were being neglected. So I encourage you to think critically about this. Who can you befriend? And as you befriend some of these folks, you can ask, what are my blind spots? What can I learn? How can I show empathy and compassion? Here's another question we can ask to challenge ourselves. Who can I, or who should I serve? Who should I serve? Now, as I mentioned, uh, works of mercy are not distractions from the gospel. They can be an evangelism strategy. And so how can you serve people, and in particular people who are marginalized? How can you practically live out the gospel? Maybe it's a local community center you can volunteer in, a, a local school you can volunteer in. Um, I think there's tremendous wisdom in finding a place where you can serve someone where maybe groups are historically or culturally marginalized. Find people in the church as well to bring with you and to do that together. So those are two questions. Who can I befriend? Who can I serve? Here's another one. Who should I empower? Who should I empower? You know, many of us, it's hard to serve. We don't have time or we don't have capacity or stress at our limits. And we feel a little bit like these 12 apostles. We feel like we have these responsibilities already. So maybe the issue for us is not we need to dive into something else, but maybe it's recognizing, you know what, there is this need. And maybe it's not for me right now at my current place in life, but who can I empower to meet that need? You know, the natural question should not be, I need to stretch myself even more so I can meet everybody's needs, but how can we mobilize the whole church with all of its diverse people, all of its diverse gifts so that we can meet these needs? The apostles recognized they had enough on their plates, so they sought people out, empowered them to do the work of mercy. Um, so I encourage you to think about the same thing. Maybe there's a group of people that you think is being neglected, a, a group maybe in your neighborhood or in your among, uh, in your circles that you feel like maybe, man, we need to serve these people. Who can you empower? Who can you identify to serve those folks? So those are three questions I want to invite you to ask. And as you do that, I encourage you to just watch the church grow. Maybe you're thinking, but who am I? I can't do these things. I'm a nobody. You know, I befriend people, serve people, empower people. Well, I'll say this. Um, there's someone else who asked these questions and answered these questions. And that was Jesus. Jesus, once upon a time, he asked, who should I befriend? And he chose us. He chose us. He said, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Jesus also asked, who should I serve? And he chose us. He said, if I, after he washed his disciples' feet, he said, if I, then your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And Jesus also asked, who should I empower? And he chose us as well. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. Behold, I'm with you to the very end of the age. So in the eyes of God, you're not a nobody. You're exactly the person that he chose to do the work of ministry, to befriend those who are in need, to serve those who are in need, to empower those in need. So you're a child of God, an ambassador for Christ, a new creation. You have been empowered to embody the gospel, to represent and demonstrate the gospel to a hurting world that's in need. So I encourage you to look for the marginalized, look for those who are being neglected, 
put aside your blind spots, engage, listen, serve, be a part of this movement that's called the church and demonstrate the gospel, communicate the gospel, see people saved, see the church grow. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for this calling, this tremendous calling that you've placed upon the church to be your representatives, to you be your ambassadors, to be your hands and feet in sharing the gospel, both through word and action to people who are in need. And God, may you give us the eyes to see those who may be hurting in our midst, the people who you may be drawing to us, but for whatever reason, they feel like they don't fit in. And may you give us the courage, the intentionality to lay aside our personal desires and preferences and privilege at times to meet these people where they're at, to learn from them, to ask questions, to build relationships with them. And as we do so, may we befriend them, serve them, and empower them. God, thank you for the example of Jesus, that though we were once marginalized ourselves, though we were lost ourselves, though we were outside the kingdom at one point in time, that we were not in the in-group at one point in time, we thank you so much that Jesus sought us out. He came and sought out the lost, which was us, and he brought us into the fold. And so we pray that that message of the gospel would be on our hearts every day. We would never forget that we were once blind, but now we see. We were once lost, and now we're found. And may that spur us to have the humility, to have the courage, to want to seek out others as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.